Coming up, the deadly knock-on effect of a species population which drops by just a few. If you reduce the abundance of a species, it can lead to extinction of other species long before this species itself goes extinct. And would you warm to a voice like this? I'm Claire. I'd like to meet a caring pie with the same interests as me. No, neither would I. We meet a speech synthesis expert who's putting emotion into robots. Plus, how plants are becoming better at using water as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere rises. This is The Nature Podcast. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. Hello. My name is Stephen Hawking. Physicist, cosmologist, and something of a dreamer. He's instantly recognisable, isn't he? Hawking uses a speech synthesizer called Speech Plus. It's over 30 years old. He doesn't change it because it's his identity now. But the world of speech synthesis, giving voices to people who've lost them or to computers and machines, has moved on a lot since. I went to the Royal Society in London, where, as part of the Summer Science Exhibition, speech synthesis expert Matthew Aylett was demoing the latest technology. What I am trying to do with speech technology is to give a voice to machines, computers and robots in effect to allow them to speak and part of this process in this technology is to try and make that potentially sound natural and in it sounding more natural it also starts to raise more interesting questions about the identity of a voice and how we should interact with computers and how we want them to interact with us. When we ring the bank we don't necessarily want it to set in a sad voice if we haven't got very much money. I mean, generally, you just want the information. But if we want to start listening to much longer pieces of information, for example, whole paragraphs, emails from loved ones, aggregated information from the web, then the voice begins to matter more and more and more. Secondly, if we want that voice to be connected to virtual agents, for example, that are supposed to have some sort of agency and internal state, then we want that voice to represent what is going on in that virtual agent. And those are really big challenges because that's dealing now with expressiveness and with emotion. And synthesizing expressiveness and emotion is hard. Why is it hard? How do you do it, for a start? So at the moment, what we're able to do, uh, and again, this depends on whether the synthesizer is being designed to do this, but we can produce limited emotional change in the voice. And we do it in a fairly... uh, traditional sort of ways we just record it so we record someone sounding say for example a bit stressed and then sounding relaxed and then we can then duplicate that sense of emotion but the problem is that at the moment all TTS systems are based on a large corpora of recordings from a single speaker or maybe multiple speakers in some cases and it's very hard to produce anything which is not already in that corpora whereas we can produce emotions which have enormous range across any linguistic categories and any any words we like. So in order to move forwards, we have to start to be able to take to pieces and decompose speech in a much more detailed way. So for example, um, this this is a clip of um, a modern speech synthesizer which you get on Android free. This little clip we call Evil Claire. I'm Claire. I study history of art at Edinburgh University. I specialize in the 18th century. As for literature, I'm interested in Latin American authors. I'm not in a relationship at the moment. I'd like to meet a caring guy with the same interests as me. 
And she does sound a little bit evil. The thing is, I'm being mischievous using that synthesizer to produce that that information because it's not really designed to produce personal information. It's designed to produce, for example, navigation. So this is an alternative voice. This is the first voice we've built, so I've got a lot of affection for it. It's a Scottish voice. We call her Nice Claire. Hi, I'm Claire. I study history of art at Edinburgh University. I specialize in the 18th century. I'm also interested in surrealism. I'm interested in Latin American authors. I'm not in a relationship at the moment. I'd like to meet a caring guy with the same interests as me. So the main difference between this voice and the other voice is there's more variation in it and the voice quality sounds more natural. And because of that, it is actually a lot easier to listen to that second voice for much longer periods of time. It brings up this question, doesn't it? Because there's a real voice behind both behind both of these. And Nice Claire is presumably a real Scottish woman. And you now have recreated her voice. So who, who owns her voice now? Well, it's an interesting question. So she, she, when she recorded her voice with us, she signed the rights away of that voice to us. So we can use that voice for any purpose. We're, we're nice, so we wouldn't use it for anything evil. But, but And she's nice Claire, and so she's, it's fine. she's nice Claire. But there's a big question. You can copy people's voices. We have examples. Um, we have some examples on the web, for example, of George Bush and uh, Barack Obama that we built using their presidential addresses. Uh, the audio is available for anyone to use for any purpose. So we've copied their voices, and we can get them to say anything we want. This raises a lot of issues about what, what, does, what is allowed and what is not allowed. My view is that it's wrong to um, synthesize someone's voice without their permission, unless it is for a particular purpose like satire or, or some artistic purpose, if you see what I mean. That won't stop people doing it, but, but I think in the long run. At the moment, there is no clear legal framework. Speaking of the long run, in the next decade or so, uh, what do you hope to, to achieve with your speech synthesizers and in the field in general? I mean, where are we going to go with this? So I think there are two things which, which I get more excited about. And, and one, one is a very solid engineering application of speech synthesis, which is people who've lost their voices. So if they have surgery and have their larynx removed, it is great if you record their voice before that happens and you can produce a synthesizer that they can use in all sorts of environments. And people really feel their voice is part of their identity. So to be able to replace that voice, I think, is a great thing. That's just kind of starting now in some respects. From maybe more the sort of sort of uh, science fiction reader in me that I kind of would, would like to see is uh, in computer games, having characters which you can talk to and have really dynamic conversations with, where instead of it just being you know some stock phrases and then you shoot them, it's more, there's more complexity in the engagement you can have with virtual characters. So less shoot em up, more soap opera. Yeah, I think I'd like that. Well, thank you, Matthew, for taking the time. And the last word goes to Barack Obama. Matthew, that was a great job. Great work. If you're ever in Washington, give me a call. Thanks, Barack and Matthew Aylett, who's a researcher at Edinburgh University and Chief Technology Officer of Seraproc. Coming up soon in the research highlights, seeing threats in a crow's brain and fat cells that sense the cold. Before that, extinction is the end of the road for a species. But before the road peters out, it can be a bumpy ride for the whole ecosystem. If the population of a key species falls, other species in the ecosystem can go completely extinct as a knock-on effect. So the extinctions we hear about are really the tip of the iceberg. A team from the University of Linköping in Sweden has been modelling the effects of dwindling numbers in a species. They call this stage functional extinction. 
I spoke to author Bo Abenman. Well, the aim of our work have been to try to find out how rare a species can become before it loses its ecological rule in, in the ecosystem. And that, that is leading to, uh, to true extinction of other depending species in, in the ecosystem. So even though a key species may not go actually extinct, they might not all die, they're leading to the actual extinction of lots of other species in that same system. Yeah, that's right. So so in a sense, you can say that those species are alive, yet dead in a, in a functional ecological sense. Now, you've, you've done a lot of modelling in your paper, and you're a, a professor of theoretical biology, but could you give us a concrete example of what you mean by functional extinction and the effects it might have on a system? One well-known example of, uh, of, uh, of this is the kelp forest ecosystems at the coastlines of the Pacific Ocean, uh, where you have a top predator, uh, that is the sea otter. And this sea otter uh, is very important for the functioning of the whole system. And uh, this sea otter was hunted very in- intensively earlier, 100 years ago, and their population size becomes very much reduced. And that had large effect on, on the rest of the system. So uh, there you could, you could see that there, there is a critical abundance threshold of this sea otter species, if, if the population fall below that level, it will have dramatic consequences for, for the rest of the species in this system. But ecologists know already, don't they, that if you lose one species or affect the numbers of one species in a system, there are knock-on effects elsewhere. What, what's new about this work? Well, the new thing is that our study suggests that, that the frequency of these functional extinctions is uh, is very uh, is very high and that for some species you just need to to reduce the population size by small numbers before it becomes uh, functionally extinct especially if you look at at large top predators and indeed those large top predators are often the focus of at least at least campaigns conservationist campaigns i'm thinking of the panda the blue whale that sort of thing. So are we not saving enough of these creatures? Well, the problem is that in many instances uh, in conservation biology, you don't take into account the, the interactions that the particular species have with other species in, in, the, in the food web. And is that the case for these, these top predators then? When it comes to, to, the, to the sea otter, they have now tried to to calculate these ecologically effective population sizes, but it's very rare that uh, that uh, this has been done for other species. But if you did have those numbers then, is this work essentially a tool for conservationists to say, right, we need to save X amount of tigers for this ecosystem to survive? Yes, uh, if you have good data on the mortality rate and reproduction of the tiger and its interaction with other species in the food web, then you can use this method to to calculate or predict how many tigers you need to have 
in order if, uh, for the tiger to be to upheld its ecological role in the system. It sounds as if you'd need an awful lot of data on an awful lot of species, though, for that to work. Yeah, I, I, it, it could be. Uh, of course, it could be difficult to, to to get these data for some species, but sometimes you can use. Uh, approximations uh, when you don't know the exact, uh, for instance, mortality rate or reproduction rate of a species. And so is, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like one of the main messages is the extinctions that we see and that we hear about are really the tip of the iceberg. What we show here is that if you reduce the abundance of a species, it can lead to extinction of other species long before this species itself is threatened and, and goes extinct. So, so that's right. That was Bo Abenman at the University of Linköping. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Charlotte Stoddart. When you get cold, you start to shiver to keep warm, and your fat cells begin to heat up by burning fuel. This so-called brown fat gets to work when the nervous system releases a neurotransmitter. Now, researchers have found other types of fat cells can directly boost heat in the cold without the nervous system telling them to. A team at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston exposed white and beige fat cells to chilly temperatures. These cells activated genes for heat production within a matter of hours. The team says these cell types found just under the skin could play a big part in how animals, including us, respond to the cold. Find that paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. When crows sense a threat, whatever it is, they attack it. But their brains respond differently to different dangers. Researchers from the University of Washington in Seattle caught wild American crows. They exposed them to different threats. The threatening human who had captured them, a potentially threatening new human holding a dead crow, and a stuffed hawk whose live counterpart poses a constant threat out in the natural world. The team then scanned the crow's brains. They found different areas of the brain were activated by each threat. Areas linked to memory by the person who caught them, the areas needed for learning by the new person, and the area associated with instinct by the hawk. You can read more about this study in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Carbon dioxide levels continue to rise. But if plants, not people, wrote the headlines, they might go for carbon dioxide golden age rather than carbon dioxide threatens our future. Because plants take CO2 out of the atmosphere when they photosynthesise, producing sugar and oxygen. More CO2, more plant growth. And now, according to a paper in Nature this week, this increase in CO2 has left them better at using water as well. To take in CO2, plants open little pores on the surface of their leaves, called stomata. They need water to do this, which they take up from the soil through their roots. But by opening their pores to let carbon in, they inevitably lose some of this water in the form of water vapour. The balance between the amount of carbon a plant takes up and the amount of water it loses when doing so is known as its water use efficiency. This exchange has been studied in the lab before, but it's very difficult to study in the wild. This week, a team based at Harvard University report their results of a decades-long study of forests in the US. They've looked to see how a plant's water efficiency changes when the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is on the up, and their findings could mean we need to reassess the part forests are playing in the global carbon cycle. Author Trevor Keenan, now based at Macquarie University in Sydney, told me more. 
So what we saw at Harvard Forest was that the carbon uptake by the forest had almost doubled in the last 20 years. 20 years ago it was taking out 250 grams of carbon per meter squared from the atmosphere and storing it, and currently that value is about 500 or 600 grams of carbon, which is a very large change. So then we started looking at the water fluxes to see, well, if it's increasing the carbon it's taking out of the atmosphere, it should be using more water to do so unless it's becoming more efficient. And lo and behold, the forest was becoming much more efficient at using water. And once we saw that, we spread the net to other similar research sites in, in the northeast US and found very similar trends. And then we started looking globally and came up with a remarkably robust trend of increasing water use efficiency over time. So plants are becoming more efficient at using water as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere rises. How sure are you that it's carbon dioxide affecting their efficiency rather than other environmental factors? Well, there are many different hypotheses or different factors that could affect long-term changes in water use efficiency. For example, changes in the leaf area of the canopy, changes due to nitrogen deposition, climate change is an obvious one if temperatures are rising. And we outlined all of the potential ones that we could test and did our best to test them. And really we managed to eliminate the vast majority of them. There are many factors on which we don't have observations. What we did do was test whether, well, if it was carbon dioxide that was causing the effect, is that a physiologically plausible response? So the magnitude of water use efficiency, can we test what physiologically would have to be happening to reproduce that magnitude of an effect? And we found that the magnitude of the increase in water use efficiency was consistent with a stomatal response, where the stomata were, despite the increasing atmospheric CO2, they were responding to maintain the level of carbon dioxide inside the leaf constant. So presumably the stomata don't need to open as wide to take up the same amount of carbon dioxide? Exactly, that's what the data seems to, to suggest, that given the gradient between what's outside in the atmosphere and what's inside in the leaf has become steeper by the presence of more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, then the diffusion of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into the leaf happens faster or it's easier so the stomata don't have to open their pores for quite as long, or quite as wide. And these narrower pores means they lose less water? Exactly, yes. What advantage can more efficient plants have for forest ecosystems and for climate change? So if a forest is more efficient at using water, it potentially means that forests can be more comfortable in areas where previously there were not, surely because there was not enough water for them to survive. So by transpiring less water, these plants are more resistant to drought? Yes, exactly. They should be more efficient at using the water resources that they have, and if those water resources are limited, then they can be more efficient at using a limited resource. These results sound to me like a good news story associated with rising carbon dioxide levels. What's your opinion on that? Well, it most definitely is. We've known for a long time that carbon dioxide, increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will benefit plants directly through making them more efficient at using water. Now, the results shouldn't be taken out of context, though, of course, because this is not a positive effect of climate change. 
It's simply a positive effect of increased CO2 in the atmosphere. Climate change itself is no doubt going to be very damaging when temperatures move into a range where forests are not currently adapted to. That could be very detrimental to forest health. What do you think these results mean for how water and carbon is cycled in forests? It's a very, very large change and it's completely unexpected. So it's not represented by any models in the present day. And those are models that are used to predict the future evolution of the Earth's climate. So it means basically a lot more work needs to be done to really fully understand what the response is and what the future prospect of this response is. How long can it continue? And also to figure out how global the response is. What will be really interesting to do will be to assess whether this response is indeed global and whether it's affecting also the Amazon, which is a hugely productive area and uses a lot of water, and all other regions of the world, basically. That was Trevor Keenan at Macquarie University in Sydney. Finally this week, it's time for the news chat and news editor Rosie Mestel joins me in the studio. Hi, Rosie. Hi there. So first story is about a new system for the blind. Yes, people with visual impairments don't have as good access as they would like to research publications and books in science and in other disciplines because they have a variety of things, including technology and also copyright restrictions. So in what is considered a major development on 27th of June, the 186 member states of the World Intellectual Property Organization came to an agreement to remove copyright obstacles by making exemptions for these uses uh, to put uh, research papers and texts, et cetera, in uh, formats that visually impaired can access, such as Braille, such as large print, such as audio. So what exactly will this new agreement allow people to do? It will allow government agencies and nonprofit bodies to convert published works to accessible versions and to distribute them globally to visually impaired people. And it will also allow organizations for the blind to freely share their collections of accessibly formatted works across borders and in particular with developing nations. And that's very important because only around one-third of the world's countries, mostly the richest, have these kinds of copyright exemptions in place. And yet 90% of the world's 285 million visually impaired people live in developing countries. So how have the blind community responded to this? Well, they're very pleased, but they don't think the problem is yet solved. For instance, uh, the article, which was written by our staff writer, Declan Butler, has a quote from Chris Danielson, who is a spokesman for the U.S. National Federation of the Blind in Baltimore, Maryland, saying that we have not yet seen the adoption of accessible formats and standards on the scale that we would like to see, particularly in the area of scientific and mathematical texts. What he's talking about is the fact that organizations for the blind don't have the resources to convert all but just a fraction of the books and other materials that are published each year. So they really want publishers to format their mainstream products to be fully accessible to the blind from the outset. And they want also the suppliers of devices such as e-readers, tablets, and smartphones to make sure that this content is usable on their devices. And moving on from that story to China. 
Yes. This week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences was an interesting study on a sort of unintended experiment that uh, took place in China, which investigated what the health effects were on the practice of burning coal in the home to heat homes. People know that the particulates that coal burning produce are bad for the health, but there has been a real paucity of studies showing just exactly how bad they are. So what these scientists did is they turned to a policy in China that went on from 1950 to 1980. And basically during that time period, people in the northern parts of China were offered coal in the winter so that they could heat their homes. And then in the 90s, what the scientists did was go back and look at what happened to the people in the northern part compared with the south. And what they found was that, number one, the air pollution was unsurprisingly higher. Particulate matter in the air was 55 percent higher, in fact. And the people's lives in the north were shortened. On average, life expectancy was shortened by five years. And the excess number of deaths came from respiratory ailments. How bad is and was the air pollution in China? Well, it's very bad. And I think in the years since this study was done, uh, the pollution has only gotten worse. For instance, Chinese air pollution made global headlines during the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And it also did so again this winter when particulate levels in Beijing exceeded 700 micrograms per cubic meter. And that's more than 50 times higher than those that are permitted by U.S. air quality standards. It sounds to me like there must be some sort of balance between the growth of the economy versus the effect that these things have on the health of their people. Yeah, I mean, the scientists do say that what this indicates is one has to find a a balance between economic growth and environmental health. But they also say that uh, these findings could play a role in global climate change debates because as one of the scientists uh, is quoted uh, in the article as saying, the study highlights that reducing the use of fossil fuels, especially coal, can have immediate benefits completely separate from climate. And so the author also says this is a good argument for reducing reliance on coal, not only to appease the U.S. and Europeans in climate change talks, but also to improve the health and well-being of the citizens. Another black mark against coal. Thanks, Rosie. Remember, you can read all of those stories and more free news goodies at nature.com nature. That's it for this week. Join us again next time when we'll be asking how open online courses are turning the world into a university. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. You are listening to the Nature Podcast. Carrie and Thea, great show.